0: Hi again, friends, and welcome to Consortio Day. This is a podcast about partnering with God to do sacred work. My name is John Chandler, and I am a spiritual director. And my practice is focused on walking alongside both individuals and teams who do sacred work to help cultivate spiritual practices, soul care, and relational support. And so this podcast is a companion to that. I interview people who all do all different kinds and all different sorts of sacred work to learn how they— incorporate their own spirituality, how they incorporate their own faith and relationship with God into the work that they do. And so today I'm looking forward to sharing with you this interview that I have with John Carroll. John is a new friend. Uh, he is also a Denver Broncos fan, which is a big deal to me. And I we could have probably easily talked about that for the entire Uh, time of this interview, but I think we spared all of you that, so you're welcome. But John is leading the School of Kingdom Living, which is part of Dallaswillard.org Ministries. I I just really appreciate his deep passion for spiritual formation, so much so that he's committed his vocation to that, but at the same time knows it's very important for his own uh, personal life to continue to develop his own formation, and you'll hear more about that in this interview. I also have a few other things I want to tell you about. Uh, Again, if you're interested in spiritual direction, uh, I would be glad to talk to you. You can reach out to me through my website, which is linked in the show notes here, as well as I have been doing some spiritual formation cohorts. I launched a practicing examined cohort this fall and going through it with our first group, and we're really enjoying that and learning from one another, and I will be offering that again this uh, coming winter. But also have a few other topics in mind, some others that are in development at various stages. And if you would be interested in any sort of small cohort to uh, build relationships alongside others and also learn together at the same time, I would love to have you learn more about that and how you could be part of that. You can go to formationcohorts.com and I have a list there of some of the other topics that are in consideration, or you can just sign up to get updates about others that are coming up. Also would be glad to have you review the podcast on iTunes as I'm really trying to start getting the word out about this podcast uh, and move it into this kind of this next season of a more steady part of my practice. So thanks so much for listening. Here we are with John Carroll. All right, John. Well, uh, John is a new friend for me and someone who I am quickly building rapport with because we have mutual interest in spiritual formation and the Denver Broncos. So <laughs> and as we've discussed, those apparently um meet far too often because being a fan of the Denver Broncos is sometimes especially this <laughs> especially for multiple seasons, contrary to spiritual formation.
1: <laughs> yes. yes, it's been a little bit of a spiritual discipline to hang in there and watch games the last few years.
0: Yes, yes. Um but so we won't we won't dwell there. It, we might we might circle back to it as a point of like you know, desolation if we, <laughs> yeah, but, but we won't, we won't dwell there to start out. So let's, let's get into why we're actually here, which is even though I would love to continue to talk about the Broncos, I'm, I'm starved for fellow Bronco fans, but we won't do that. Um, tell us, John, about that. Tell us about your work. Tell us about the context of your sacred work that you do.
1: Yeah. Well, first um, to thank you so much for, you know, the opportunity to share um you know, in thinking about this, I, I think I have two different contexts of sacred work. Um, I, you know, the, the first context would be uh, my work with Dallas Willard Ministries, really, which is a real privilege in and of itself. Um, sure. The the board for DWM had uh, commissioned me to develop and lead a uh, something called the uh, the School of Kingdom Living, and it's funny because whenever I'm at like a dinner party or I have some sort of a social event and somebody inevitably asks me like, what do you do for a living? Right. I find that I struggle to put words to the school of kingdom living that really do it justice because yeah. it's so much more than just a, a quick little answer. Sure. And so for the context of this uh, uh, conversation, I'll say that the the school of kingdom living is an 18 month formation program uh, that's rooted in the best kind of community that I've ever witnessed. Yeah, And our aim is to help people uh, go deeper in their relationship with God and also to put on the character of Christ in their everyday lives, You know, to live their lives as Jesus would if he were them. And uh, there's a specific process that uh, we use to help our students uh, do all that. Yeah, yeah. So we have four week long residencies uh, that happen over the 18 months. And uh, there are books that they read and uh, spiritual practices that they experiment with to help prepare them for each residency. And then once they arrive at the residencies, then we take them on the deep dive. And so our faculty will give lectures, um, but we don't want our students uh, learning to just end with head knowledge. Um, so we connect the spiritual practice to the lectures. And then we follow up that practice with processing their experience with each other. Yeah, And so um, they will hear it in the lecture, and then they do it in the practice, mm-hmm. and then they process it in community with one another. And really, that's what we've discovered to be a reliable model of formation. Yeah. And so that's probably the, the best, quickest thing I give about my sacred work. With DWM,
0: I mean that's really the value of that cohort model too, right? Because you can get all the content almost any place, but being right. able to being able to wrestle with it on your own and then learn from others, um, especially as trust is built, is a beautiful environment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah.
1: And, and and
0: the way that people
1: come together. I mean, I just think that there is a, a longing. For followers of Jesus, you know, to connect with each other like at a really deep level, mm-hmm. and for whatever reason, the, the church struggles to foster that. I mean, people, um, you know, there everybody who does the School of Kingdom Living is connected to a church, yeah, uh, but they, they they struggle to find the kind of uh, community that they have in, in the school, and uh, people come together with this burning desire to. Uh, go deeper with God and one another, and you know, really neat things happen.
0: Sure. Well, and I think that's the burden the church carries because in a church setting, you're dealing with people day to day, week to week, and it's so hard to disrupt attention, you know. Or whereas doing something like you're doing, where you call somebody to something specific for a season offers something that the church struggles to offer. And that's not, I don't mean that as a critique of the church. I think that's the challenge of the church that, you know, a program like you're offering has the benefit of.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it does.
0: And it does. You know, one of the other things that I get asked
1: um, is like, well, who can do the school? You know, is this just something for pastors only? Uh, is it only for people in ministry? And And what I typically will tell people is that it's intended for anybody who wants to, you know, go deeper with God and put on the character of Christ. I mean, you know, so whether, um, you know, whether you're in professional ministry or you're an accountant or a physician or an attorney or a school teacher or a homemaker yeah. uh, or a retiree, huh, you know, we take a, a, all ages and stages, uh, different denominations. So we're very ecumenical and open to all vocations as well.
0: Yeah. Do you, do you find some time that it's even – I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question. Do you find sometimes that it's even more fruitful or more uh, that people who are not in vocational ministry are more readily even able to engage in it? I'm I'm assuming that's true, and I don't know why I am, so I don't know how to ask the question.
1: <laughs> I will say that about 70% of our cohorts are made up of people who are not in ministry. Yeah. And that's really exciting because— most trained ministry people have been to seminary or some sort of Christian education, and this might be uh, uh, just your your normal lay person's first entry into sure. uh, yeah.
0: uh,
1: theological s- spiritual formation training. So, to be able to give them uh, some tools and some resources to connect them with God, and then to to help them pass that along to other people, uh, is is really exciting for us. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. In a lot of ways, they're, they're really on the front lines. I mean, they're the ones in the small groups. Um, they're the ones connecting and and uh, d- doing a lot of the work that they're commissioned to do. So um, it's yeah. helpful.
0: Yeah. Well, well, we will certainly circle back to that, uh, the School of Kingdom Living, because you mentioned you really have two vocations. So yeah, I'd love to hear what, <laughs> or, or, or two two contexts of sacred work, so to speak. So I'd love to hear more about the other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say the other is uh, just my sacred work as a father of teenagers. Yeah. You know, Uh, so I've got a 17 year old son. He's a senior in high school and a 16 year old daughter. Uh, She's a sophomore. And I I think one of the things that I'm discovering is as my kids get older, uh, they're getting a lot more independent. You know, (laughs) they don't need me as much, at least, you know. Not little things, and so uh, what? One of the things that I've discovered in this sacred work as a a father of teenagers is that the way that I relate to them and the way that they relate to me is changing, or it has. Mm -hmm. I guess I should say,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. I've got a friend, uh, Susan, you know, who told me a couple years ago that she said that when your kids are ages zero to fourteen, they'll accept your inputs, but after age fourteen. Uh, then they'll only accept your influence. Hmm. I thought that was pretty profound. And and as I thought about my relationship with my kids, um, I could see that where they didn't really want to hear what I had to say about it. So I had to change the way that I related to them. And it was more of an influence kind of a model. And so I've been thinking a lot about how uh, I can have influence that still gives them the freedom to make choices. Yeah. (laughs) Usually involves a lot of like biting my tongue.
0: Right. <laughs> and I mean, I have kids in the same range. And so, what I find actually is really helpful. I mean, my youngest is 14. So, he's about to transition into <laughs> influence in a month. But what I find is um, it makes it all the more meaningful when they ask for input, because then that means there's something that they're seeing. And I'm not suggesting it happens all the time, but it means yeah. that there's something they're seeing in this framework you're describing, which I find really helpful. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe what I'm hoping they'll catch on to is rubbing off because they're at least asking about
1: it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's really nice when they come and ask you questions. You're like, oh, good. Um, and I'm still valuable in your eyes. You know, I think one of the things that I I really struggle with is control. <laughs> um you know, I, I, uh, the exhaustion that I experience as a parent, um, isn't really related to uh, the effort I exert in parenting. Hmm. It's really related to, uh, the exhaustion I experience, um, you know, while trying to control the things I can't control.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, and so parenting teenagers
0: is the hardest when I realize how much control I'm losing. <laughs> Yeah, even input to influence is a big release of control.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and it's funny because you know COVID, and mm-hmm. that whole season was full of pain and um, heartbreak. You know, but there, I think there were some helpful lessons in there too. You know, like one of the things is that we discovered is that uh, we really do need community. Uh, being isolated mm-hmm. is is really hard, and so uh, I think our, our need for community was illuminated. But um, also, I learned how to deal with loss. <laughs> in COVID. Um, I lost my job in yeah. COVID. Um, my wife and I were uh, co-pastoring a church at the time. We resigned uh, our positions at the church in order to um, move back home to Florida from Kansas. And um, there was a lot of loss there as well. I mean, that was all painful. But um, you know, dealing with that kind of loss has really helped me deal with the loss of control. Uh, That I feel with my kids. Hmm. Yeah. You know, and as Americans, I just don't think that we do well uh, with surrender. No. You know, surrender feels like defeat or it feels like weakness. Like, um, you know, we'll we'll never give up. Um, But I think as, you know, followers of Jesus, you know, I prefer to reframe this idea of surrender. You know, like instead of giving up, I can give over. And it becomes a conscious decision to say, well, I'm just going to abandon the outcomes to Jesus. Like I just give it over to you, God. Yeah. And, you know, that's really my counter practice for trying to control my kids' lives. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you now it's like, like as a dad, I just love them so much. And, and I want them to experience like every good thing that God has to offer in this life. And I just need to trust the foundation uh, that's been set for them. Yeah. You know, it was funny. Um, a couple months ago, uh, the pastor, Rich Viotas. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Rich. Sure, yeah. So, uh, so Rich was on uh, good morning America. That was pretty mm-hmm. cool. And, um, And during the interview, you know, he was asked about a message that he would want their audience to to know. And and it was real interesting. He said there's four things. He said, God loves you. Don't be afraid. God is with you. And you can come home. And I just think that says so much about our relationship with God and what we can count on. You know, and I thought about, you know, those four ideas as it relates to our Heavenly Father and His children. And, you know, those are four things that I'd want my children to know. Like, you know, Dad loves you with a relentless kind of love. And then don't be afraid, you know, because you live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. Dad is with you. You know, I've always got your back. Hmm. And no matter what happens, you can always come home. I think that's the heart of a father. And really, it's the most sacred work I'm involved with at this yeah. time.
0: Yeah. And I love that you named that because yeah. sacred work is not always some grant. I mean, you're you're leading a nationwide organization that is you know, doing significant work and working with a lot of people, um, you know, both who are helping lead in that organization that you're overseeing, you know, that, that part of the organization as well as the people who are coming to be part of it. Yeah. But I love that you are willing to name just as much this, I don't want to say mundane, but this seemingly day-to-day task of just raising your teenage children is equally this role of sacred work. And it's not just, and it is, you know, and it, uh, it is mundane because it's day to day, but that you see it the way that you see it. I, I feel like even in naming what you're naming though, in terms of the loss from COVID and helping that to be aware of, even of this loss of control with your kids, there's a lot of intentionality in that. Like there's a lot of awareness on your part on that. How did that, how do you cultivate that level of intention? How do you cultivate that level of awareness? Mm. Because because in your in your ministry life, yeah, it's there's an expectation. There's probably systems built in to be intentional. There's board meetings to report to, I imagine, or something. Yeah, um, but you don't have that, you know, with, with your family with your kids. It's just day to day. So how how has that come about? What, what what's that come out of?
1: Well, I, yeah, that's a really great question. I would say that my awareness of this was really piqued uh, by John Tyson. He's a pastor hmm. in New York City, and he wrote a phenomenal book called The Intentional Father. And I stumbled on the book through a podcast, and the way that he described the book, I thought, that's really like the kind of dad I want to be. Like, uh, you know, he, he talked about five different sort of levels of dad or phases of dad. And, um, you know, uh, like the the fifth one, the one that you really want to grow into is the intentional father. The one just below that is uh, the involved father. And I really felt like that's where I was. Mm-hmm. You know, he described the involved father as, you know, the kind of dad who, you know, is present at the dinner table, comes yeah. out to, you know, the, the dance recitals and, the sporting events and things like that. But a lot of what he experiences is reactive instead of proactive. And uh, John Tyson just gave a really great vision for being a proactive, intentional father to really anticipate the kinds of things that your kids will encounter. I mean, really, he's, he wrote to you know uh, this relationship between a father and a son, but he said it applies to daughters as well. And, and so, you know, reading the book and digesting it, uh, it really helped me start to think more forwardly about the kinds of conversations that I would have with my kids and the kinds of things that I would do with my kids. And it, it really was kind of some breakthrough stuff, like a, like a for instance, uh, one of the things that Tyson talks about in the book are values um that we don't really give a lot of thought to We're like really what are your values yeah and 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 so i i i took some of the stuff that he had shared in the chapter on on values and i just did like a little sunday morning lesson with our kids we stayed home from church and we kind of did church at home and um my wife and our two kids we just sat around in the living room and i i talked about the importance of values and i said you know if you're not really sure what your values are um, you know, think about experiences that you have at school. Like maybe you see a kid getting bullied, you know, maybe a kid getting pushed around, not treated well by your peers. And well, you know, if, if, if something in you is sparked, you get upset by that. You're angered by that. Well, then maybe justice is a core value because, you know, somebody's infringing on that and it's really upsetting. Um, on the other side of the coin, you know, maybe you see somebody who does something uh, really nice. Like maybe somebody drops their books in the hallway and someone will come over and help pick those up and help that student out. So maybe kindness is a core value. And, and we talked about, um, you know, uh, Galatians 5.22 and 23, Fruit of the Spirit, maybe some of the, the values that reside there. Um, but we, we just end up having this conversation about core values, like, um, like uh, family values, and then also personal values. It gave them an opportunity to write. Uh, just take 15 minutes and write your top five um, family values. Like, what do you think it means to be a carol? Hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: And then uh, write five personal values. Like the things that you think are really the guardrails or the the um, uh, the, the sort of boundaries that you establish that um, you live your life with. So after 15 minutes, we come back and everybody shares. And I got a whiteboard. I mean, I really nerded out on it. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I, and so I put everybody's name and then their five uh, personal values and the five family values. And the conversation, John, that came out of this was so cool to hear really like what they felt are the guiding principles of their life. Yeah. And so we had this great conversation. We prayed over it and we set it down. And then we picked it up the following Sunday. And I said, okay, now that you've listed your, everybody's got their own set of family values. Now we're going to agree on. Uh, the the five that are going to define the carols.
0: Hmm.
1: And, uh, and so the, the five values that we ended up coming up with uh, was faith. Like faith is number one. Um, we came up with grace um, and just to have grace for one another. Um, the third one was character. Yeah. And, and so uh, we, we, we identified that as important uh, love mm-hmm. and joy uh, because we do like to have a lot of fun. Yeah. And then, and then I, I said, okay, now everybody gets to take one of their personal values and then adds that as sort of an, uh, an addendum to our, our family values. And so my wife uh, included acceptance as her uh, personal value. Uh, my daughter included generosity. Wow. Um, my, my son included uh, loyalty. Hmm. And then I included kindness. And I printed it out on some cardstock and I tuck it in our uh, napkin holder on our kitchen table where we eat dinner. Yeah. And, and so as we have conversations about how are things going at school, what happened today, what, what's going on, then we're able to use the core values uh, in the midst of that conversation and say, okay, well, you saw this happen or you experienced this. How does that align or conflict with your core values? And it's just been a really great conversation tool. Um, for our family,
0: and does that does that level of intentionality come naturally to you? No. <laughs> like, 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 are you the kind of person who before would have said these are the five core values for my life, or has this just been you really trying to be malleable in your own life, so to speak, in order to lead others this way?
1: Yeah, I think I'm just like trying to be flexible. I'm, i I. I feel like as as the kids are entering into different ages and stages, uh, I'm trying to meet them where they're at. Yeah. And love them and lead them the best way I can. So uh, I, I'm just looking for anything that will, will keep us connected, keep the conversation going.
0: Yeah. well, so. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. So as as someone who leads the school of kingdom living, I felt like it was a huge risk to have you on here because I would assume because you're leading that you have spiritual formation sorted out and you are fully formed and that just having you talk for a few minutes, you would drop all the secrets and this podcast and even my spiritual direction practice would no longer be necessary. <laughs> no, I can't. Um But I'll, so I'll let you say, where I'm going with that question is uh, l- let us hear more about your own um, your own rhythms, your own formation practices um, that are still shaping you and guiding you. Because I'm sure you still I'm sure you still have a ways to go. I do, yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I really do. Um, I would say that uh, I I get more wrong than I get right. Hmm. It seems like. Um, but I think that's why we call them practices is because you just do it over and over again. Yeah. You get better at it. Um, and, and one of the things that I discovered is that, um, you know, some practices are a home run. Like I really enjoy engaging. Like I can't wait to, you know, engage in this kind of a practice. And then there's others that just aren't a fit. Um, they, they don't really connect me to God in the way, um, that, uh, that maybe uh, connects, you know, other people to God. So I try to hold that kind of stuff loosely, um, yeah. you know, really just gravitate to the things that are connecting to me to God in the moment. And really that's the aim of the the disciplines or spiritual practices. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a, uh, they're not means of earning God's favor or God's love. It's really just, um, you know, um, you know, just uh, acts of grace that help connect me, you know, to God and, Um, Just trying to cooperate with God, you know, wherever, you know,
0: I may be led. But um, there's a lot of Dallas Willard uh, behind that answer you just gave. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the the beautiful byproducts of uh, working for Dallas Willard Ministries is that um, I just am immersed in a lot of the wonderful things he had to say through his talks and books and just engaging in conversation with. You know, people who uh, knew him and worked with him, and yeah, were part of his family I, you know to it's it, like I said in the very beginning. I mean, it's a it's a privilege to yeah. do, what I do, but um, but I, I do try to engage in a handful of practices as a way to stay connected to God. I mean, I would say you know the first and the primary would be prayer. You know, Dallas would you know, define prayers talking to God about what we're doing together.
0: I like that. Yeah. You know, it's so simple, right? It's not, it's, it doesn't make it this big lofty unattainable thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and I, I I try not to use big flowery words when I get into a conversation with God, but just really kind of keep it at a street level. Um, and just talk to God about what we're doing together. And so I may ask like, you know, God, would you uh, help me, you know, know what I need to know about this particular situation or, you know, would you help me be, you know, a better leader or a more patient person or a more credible witness, um, you know, for your glory? So, uh, you know, prayer is pretty foundational for me. Um, and I, I, so that that would definitely
0: be one. And What is that? And what does that look like for you? Like, is that a journaling it out? Is that a, you know, walking and talking with God in your head? Like, what is that? What form does that prayer take? Often, um, I I feel like like
1: if, if I was going to relate it to being on the phone with God, I just feel like I, I'm I, I never hang up. Yeah, um, I feel like God's always listening, and I, and I never say goodbye. You know, um, it's just like I'm, I'm continuously talking to God throughout my day. I mean, as I wake up, as I'm thinking about my body, you know, gosh, feeling a little stiff this morning. Um, You know, talking to God about that as I get in my car and yeah. um, driving around town. I mean, I would say that's where I really <laughs> spend a lot of time talking to God. Um, I, th- I feel like if I talk to God a lot while I'm driving, then I won't be tempted to be annoyed by how bad the other drivers are.
0: <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah it's like it's really hard to 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 be mad at other drivers while talking to God, so that's usually a good way for me just to um you know focus on the road by focusing on God yeah so it's kind of a everyday it's a, that pray continuously thing
0: mm-hmm.
1: that we see in scripture
0: yeah
1: yeah
0: okay what what uh what are some other practices for you well
1: um I really enjoy silence and solitude now. Hmm. I did it at first. I think that silence and solitude is really tough because it's so quiet <laughs> and we're yeah. not used to quiet. Because our lives are so full of noise and distractions. And when we when we withdraw from the busyness, craziness, distractions of our day, and just be alone with God, it, it takes some uh, adjustment,
0: you how know, to get yeah. used to that. Yeah.
1: So, um, so I I live in a a little uh, beachy community on the east central coast of Florida, a town called Melbourne, and I live about ten minutes away from the beach. So, mm-hmm. what's really helpful for me, life giving for me, is to uh, just punch out a little early on a Friday afternoon. Then you know, grab my beach chair and umbrella, and just go over to the beach and 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 sit and stare at the ocean. I mean, the ocean's yeah. a, a beautiful thing to stare yes. at. Yes. So, so uh, you know, that's that's primarily when I'll practice silence and solitude. It's just go to the beach and you know be alone with God, and and it takes me a little while to kind of settle in. I mean, like when I first started practicing, like ten minutes was excruciating. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so when I talk to people about silence and solitude, I say, you know, don't be too hard on yourself. Um, one of my good friends, Jan Johnson says, do it as you can, not as you can't. Meaning like, you know, if, if 10 minutes is about all the silence and solitude your soul can take in in one sitting, then let that be good enough and start there. Um, Mm -hmm. don't think, gosh, I, you know, I must not love God because I can't do an hour of silence and solitude and then beat yourself up for it, you know, for sure. the next you know day or week or whatever. Sure.
0: Yeah. And so what is that? I mean, is that, is there any, it seems silly to ask this question, but is there any structure to that silence and solitude? Like, is there a way, are there certain things you've learned you need to do to enter? I mean, sitting in a beach chair at the beach Alone yeah. is really helpful. But uh, do you do any breath prayers or anything like that, or are you just for you? Is it just I'm going to be here and calm my mind and see what comes of this?
1: Yeah, I, I well, I turn off. I leave my phone in the car, so I don't even have my phone with me. Yeah, that's really helpful. But really, just creating that silence. Um mm-hmm. I don't really try to enter into it with any kind of agenda. But maybe like you know, hey God, what do you have for me? You know, what would you want me to know? Because I pre- practice it on a Fridays, usually, um, I, I use it as a way to prepare for the weekend because I know I'll have a lot of extended family time. So, um, God, would you help me be more present to my wife and kids this weekend
0: mm-hmm. without
1: the need to check my email? Yes. Um, yeah. You know, like, is, is there anything you'd like me to know heading into this weekend to help me be a better husband or a better dad? Um a better follower of your son, Jesus. I mean, like those are the kinds of things that I'll ask and then I'll just sit and listen and, and just wait. And I'll practice it, it, Usually my practice now lasts about an hour. That seems to be a good amount of time uh, on average.
0: Yeah. That, gosh, that's really good, John, because um, it's, it's, first of all, you work from home. As I understand it, right? Most of the time. I do have a little office that I use. Um,
1: Yeah. And so I, I, I kind of bounce in between, but, but
0: point that aside, it's, it's very easy to enter into your work week by Sunday night or Monday morning, looking ahead at your work week and saying, Okay. okay, this is what I have to do. And maybe even, you know, in the case of the job that you have, like spending time praying over it, but to be that deliberate Because you see your family and your kids, especially as sacred work to be that deliberate about now I'm changing, not changing roles, but engaging more deeply in this other part of sacred work to have that same level of preparation seems really, really helpful in a a way that I I can't say I've really considered for me, like moving into the weekend, I know it's going to be more family time and we're very intentional about our Sabbath, but I'm not that intentional about preparing for it. <laughs> then let me get all this other stuff done so I can be present to it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it It is a little bit of a
1: tug and pull. Uh, and, and Sunday evenings, I'm usually already like my mind is starting to yeah. drift into, okay, Monday's right around the corner. Um, but, but usually the, the first part of my weekend is phenomenal, you know, Friday night Saturday Sunday morning right
0: up until the Broncos came (laughs) (laughs) and then then it comes off the rails yeah this year um so I want to ask you about something else then since we're talking about the beach um when you and I first met you talked about surfing Mm -hmm. so can you talk about surfing and why you surf yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, it's really funny. So when I, when I was living in Kansas, I was listening to a podcast, uh, Steve Cuss has this podcast called Managing Leadership Anxiety. Uh, phenomenal. And he was interviewing Nancy Ortberg. And uh, she was talking about how uh, Azusa Pacific University did a study about the number one key to sustainability for lead pastors, you know, and how to avoid burnout. And she said their findings were really interesting. And uh, she said um, the number one key is not spiritual practices, <laughs> um, and it's not more education. And she said the number one key to sustainability for lead pastors is finding a hobby that, when you do it, it causes you to lose track of time. Hmm. And when she when she shared that on the podcast, it really was like a thunder punch to the chest because sure. I quickly realize like i don't have any form of a hobby people say what do you do in your free time I said, I, like you know i i rest i recover from all the work i mean at the time when i was when i heard that podcast i was uh, co-vocational um so i i was working full-time uh, for a spiritual formation program in wichita and then uh, part-time i was co-pastoring a church with my wife so i mean like i was literally working six days a week every week and sometimes seven um and, 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 and so, uh, when I heard her talk about the necessity of hobby, when we moved back to Florida, I thought I need to find a hobby. And I used to surf before moving to Kansas. So I thought, well, now that I'm back in Florida and I live so close to the ocean, I want to get back into surfing. So I picked up a board and got back in the water. And, uh, that's one of the things I truly love to do because, There's just something about, you know, floating in the ocean on a surfboard, you know, where, like, you feel so small, yet, you know, you feel so loved by God
0: just to be immersed in his creation. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Zinger here. How do you know when you're not doing well? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Usually my wife tells me. (laughs) (laughs) It's like and then, how long, and then how long does it take you to actually accept that she's telling you that? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Now, now we're going into some of our deep counseling sessions. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, um, uh, you know, I would say that I know when I'm not doing well, when I'm feeling anxious. Mm. And um, that usually, you know, means when I'm, you know, I'm trying to, you know, control something. <laughs> You know, maybe what the kids are doing or maybe it's I'm, I'm working too hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and 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 I do have a tendency to do both those things. But I would say that when my anxiety levels up and I could sort of I, I've I think I've struggled with anxiety my entire life. And one of the things that I've discovered is that, um, you know, you never really get rid of anxiety. You just change your relationship with it. Mm-hmm. And I've become aware, like, when I'm feeling anxious, I, I feel it coming on. And I'm like, okay, I need to take some steps in order to, you know, back out of this. And most of the time, I do pretty well uh, with that. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that's how I would I uh, recognize when I'm not doing well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's good to be able to name that. I mean, going back to everything you said earlier about surrender, you know, surrender in a lot of ways, I assume, is would be a counter to anxiety for you
1: yeah 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 it is
0: i I didn't prepare you for this question um but you left me curious when we first met because you told me about the one time you met dallas willard but that would be a time for a story for another time i'm curious would that be a story you could tell here yes
1: yeah so um I, you know, I, I, uh, I'm a second career and a ministry kind of person. I spent the first 11 years of my career, uh, working in kind of a corporate healthcare, kind of an entrepreneurial environment. And I was volunteering a lot in the church. And then at, uh, at one point, you know, God got a hold of my heart and said, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing with your life. And, uh, I was in the midst of that transition between, uh, my, my healthcare job and, applying to seminaries. And I was listening to uh, a podcast where John Ortberg was interviewing Dallas um, at John's former church. And people were asking questions. I I think they might be texting them in or emailing them in. But anyway, John was relaying the questions to Dallas. And one of the questions was, um, why is God such a big deal? And if, if Jesus is a big deal, then how would you advise me to proceed to follow him hmm. it's kind of a big question and so dallas started by saying well well don't start by doing the big things instead start by putting into practice the things that jesus taught about trusting him to be right about it and then gradually you'll come to discover what a big deal he is and i was listening to that podcast on my way into my healthcare job and I pulled the car over into the the parking lot of a gas station, and I rewound the podcast and i and I wrote down verbatim the question and the answer and I said to myself, "I have never heard anybody explain Christianity or following Jesus like this yeah and and so i and that that was in my my journal and uh and i I really started to rethink how I experienced my Christian faith and how I really was going to follow Jesus. I, I mean, just what he said about putting into practice the teachings of Jesus, trusting him to be right about it. I mean, I, I said, okay, I want to start doing that. Well, fast forward about a year and a half, Dallas was speaking at a conference in Wichita and had some friends that said, hey, do you want to go see Dallas Willardy's He said, at this conference, I said, absolutely. So my wife and I went and I sat in a workshop that Dallas was teaching and just had my mind blown for sixty minutes. Yeah. And just jotting as much as I could down. I mean, just taking a ton of notes. And afterwards I waited to talk with him and I brought that journal that I written a quote down. And I said, Dallas, you you have no idea how much this changed it for me. Hmm. Uh, just changed the way that I understand my faith. And one of the really remarkable things about Dallas is that when you talk to him, it doesn't matter, didn't matter like how many people were behind you waiting to talk to him as well. He always looked you in the eye and it was like you're the only person in the room. And I felt so cared for in that moment. And as I explained to him the importance of what he was saying, Um, and what we know what he had said in that quote and so he uh, signed my journal and we got our picture together uh, which i really cherish and then he passed away 18 months later from cancer and so i was really grateful to have that time with him as short as it was
0: um it was very special yeah i'm glad i asked I, i remember being at um a conference at the church I started you know many years ago as part of the Ecclesia network and he was one of our speakers once and I remember he talked about in a session or something just talked about you know obviously he prepares when he's speaking and stuff like that but he also leaned very heavily on just on what he interpreted the spirit was doing in the room like even in that kind of space um, for a Baptist that's pretty amazing <laughs> um, yes but but at the same time, you know, I had one brief conversation with him at that over a cafeteria table and experienced the same thing you described, because it feels like in the same way that he talked about being aware of what the spirit was doing in the room, that even in that interpersonal dynamic, there was some awareness of what the spirit was doing between him and this other person. It's like he's a spiritual director all the time. Like, how is it, how is the spirit involved in this interaction in a way that's pretty amazing? So. Yeah. yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, well, thanks for asking. Yeah, that was a fun story to recall. Um, w- one one question we'll start winding down, but uh, who do you hope to be in ten years?
1: Whew. That's a that's a big question. Um, hmm. You know, I think about who I was ten years ago. Yeah, and you know, that would have been 2012. I was in my second year of seminary. I mean, just totally clueless, not knowing what the future was going to hold. Um, you know, I, I hope that, I mean, like, yeah, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, like what I'd be doing right now to go, right. yeah, you know, you, you, you just met Dallas that was, you know, the year I met him. Um, you know, and, and now you're going to be working for Dallas Willing Ministries. I would have been like, yeah, right. You're out of your mind. Yeah. You know, um, but, you know, here I am 10 years later, and uh, and I'm doing this incredible work. And so, uh, you know, I hope that in 10 years from now, I'm surprised at, in a good way, at who I sure. become you know, I, I think I've grown a lot in the last 10 years. I hope that I, I see that kind of, you know, growth. I mean, I, I still want to be, a, you know, a good husband and a good dad. Um, I'm going to be a faithful apprentice of Jesus. I want to help people experience just all the riches of God's kingdom. Um, but Yeah, I just,
0: I, I, I'm excited about what that may be. Yeah. Like genuinely a an Ephesians, I think it's Ephesians three, him yeah. who is able to do imagine. beyond all we can imagine. Yeah. Like I hope in ten years that applies to me.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. One of the terms that I love to
1: use, um, Eugene Peterson used it in his message translation of the Bible is uh it, this term adventurously expectant. Hmm. Um, like I'm adventurously expectant for the person I'll be in ten years. Because uh, I trust that God will continue to do a good work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, talk uh, just briefly here as we wrap up for somebody who's maybe curious about Dallas Willard Ministries and particularly the the SKL, the School of Kingdom Living. What you know, what that might look like? How often are you doing those? And what might it mean for somebody to be part of that? Great. Yeah. Uh, we launch a new
1: cohort every year. Mm-hmm. The cohort, uh, uh, the cohorts begin in February, but the preparation happens a few months beforehand. So we are right on the tail end of our open application process for cohort three. And uh, they will begin their readings uh, at the end of uh, October of this year. And then those readings will take them all the way to residency one in February. But if somebody wants to just start the conversation like, gosh, this really piqued my interest. I'd love to learn more about your faculty and your curriculum and the way that you facilitate uh, the program. Um, please, uh, you can contact me through our website It's uh, simply dwillard.org. Willard.org. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can, uh, email me and I don't know, do you have show notes? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I can include that. And so, yeah, maybe include my, my email address in the show notes. And just drop me an email. We can start the conversation.
0: Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. And I mean, if nothing else, I'm sure the spiritual formation part of it is great. But even just seeing pictures of the location where you have the residencies in California overlooking, which, I mean, you're, you look at the ocean every Friday, but <laughs> <laughs> being close to the ocean is, again, a, a beautiful reason. So, yeah, John, thank you so much. We spared everybody Bronco's talk, but I really appreciate your uh, the work you're doing. Really appreciate your heart um, and and just your, your uh, openness to come and be a part of this. So thank you very much. Oh, it's my pleasure, John.
1: Thank you for having me. And uh, God bless you in the work that God has called you to. Thank you.